0: Hey everyone, John Mark here. We have a few more weeks of Bridgetown Online before we switch over to a live stream in our new building. In the meantime, I invite you to get out your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 18 as we continue our teaching series through Jesus' biography. We left off last week at the very end of chapter 17. Let's pick it up in chapter 18, verse one. Read with me down to verse nine. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea." Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell." Jaron Lanier is a Silicon Valley insider that I've been following his work for a while now. He started out as a computer scientist back in the 1970s in the kind of nascent days of the internet. He was basically the inventor of VR, but has since become more of a philosopher and writer. His most recent book is Ten Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. Great title. I read it last summer, but in light of just All That Is 2020, I'm rereading it along with my wife and my best friend this time around, trying to decide whether to stay on or get off social media as a follower of Jesus. You know, and on one hand, it's like, well, that's kind of an extreme step. On the other hand, his logic is very compelling. Here are his 10 arguments in short. Here's the book in 30 seconds. One, you are losing your free will. Two, quitting social media is the most finely targeted way to resist the insanity of our times. Three, social media is making you into a jerk, but he does not use the word jerk. You can fill in the blank. Four, social media is undermining truth, Five, social media is making what you say meaningless. Number six, social media is destroying your capacity for empathy. Seven, social media is making you unhappy. Eight, social media doesn't want you to have economic dignity. Nine, social media is making politics impossible. And ten, social media hates your soul. Hi, welcome to Bridgetown Church. Human beings are social creatures from top to bottom. We were created in the image of a Trinitarian community that we call God. Put another way, we were created for relationship by a God who is relationship. This is why the social isolation of COVID-19 in the last few months is so dang hard. And it's why COVID hitting at a time when our nation is more divided than it's been since the Civil War, in part due to social media, is even harder. We were designed to live as human beings in the image of God, to live in relationship in a thick web of interdependent community. And not just any kind of community, but one that is loving and that is just. But when sin is introduced into the human condition, in Genesis 3, if you've read the origin story in the library of scripture, if not, please go read it. In that story, there is a fracture between Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are not proper names in Hebrew. That's why you don't read about any more Adams or Eves in the story or in the Old Testament. Adam is a Hebrew word, adam, meaning human, and Eve is a Hebrew word meaning life. When the, when the, Fabric is torn apart between human and life where there once was love and unity, two or one flesh, right? And self-giving, now there is spite and division and an egoic grasping for power. Lanier's key point is that social media makes a bad problem, right, sin in community, even worse. He writes, quote, Social media is biased, not to the left or the right, but downward. An unfortunate combination of biology and math favors degradation of the human world. Information warfare units sway elections, hate groups recruit, and nihilists get amazing bang for the buck when they try to bring society down. Social media causes an explosive amplification of negativity in human affairs. Now, I open with Lanier, not to convince you to delete all of your social media accounts, though I'm seriously considering that for myself, but just to say the acute problem of our time that we're living through right now is nothing new. It's as old as time itself. In Matthew 18, Jesus is dealing with both the potential of life in community and the problem of sin in that same community. The chapter is one flow of thought from the beginning to the end, but due to length, it will take us a few weeks to cover it all. In it, we have some of Jesus' most famous teachings, the parable about the sheep and the one and the 99, the teaching on if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, also known as the Matthew 18 principle. It's all in the paragraphs to come. In chapter 18, Jesus is giving his apprentices, now and then, a vision for the church after his departure, more specifically for how we are to live together with sin still in our DNA. How are we to deal with the problems and issues that come up, not just in society at large, but in our own church or in our own community when we just do life with other people. Let's work through the text line by line if you still have your Bible open in front of you. And I know notepad. Verse 1, "...at that time the disciples," or that can be translated the apprentices, "...came to Jesus and asked, "'Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven?' Or put another way, which one of us is the most important or at the top of the social hierarchy? Scholars theorize the subtext here is that the apprentices realize Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die. He just said that in the paragraph before, meaning the question is very tone deaf, and they want to figure out how to be the one left in charge. The story goes on. Verse 2, Jesus called a little child to him, and the Greek word here for little child is for, you know, think of a toddler or a very young kid. And he placed the child among them, like smack dab in the middle as an object lesson for the apprentices. And he said, 3, truly I tell you, or other translations have, amen, I tell you. It's an idiom that was unique to Jesus of Nazareth. It was his way of saying, listen up, what I'm about to tell you is crucial. Unless you change, the Greek word translated change here is literally turn around and go in the opposite direction. One translation has, unless you turn your lives completely around And become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Set who is the greatest in the kingdom aside. You will not even get into the kingdom of heaven with a question or a heart posture like that. Now, it is very easy to misread Jesus' teaching here. Because in the late modern world that you and I call home, we romanticize children, which is in part an advertising tactic to get parents and grandparents especially to spend more money on children. But it's also why there is so much cynicism from parents because the romanticism in our culture around marriage and family and parenting and children, it does not match reality. I I have three children. They are all stunning human beings. I mean, just wonderful. But I have no idea how anyone is a parent and a humanist. There must be like an intellectually coherent way. I don't know what it is. Yes, it's true that children are full of wonder and joy and creativity and there's an innocence about a child. All of that is true. But they are also hyper-narcissistic cruel and violent at times, particularly if you have boys, they have no emotional regulation, they are foolish, like that's just as true. No, that's not to slam children at all. I'm an advocate of children and family and all of that. It's to set all of that in reality. Scholars argue that Jesus' point here is not that we are to copy some abstract, sentimental, childlike attribute, like wonder or carefree spirit or creativity, but we are rather to take on the status of a child. The line before and the line after it are both about status. This is a very stratified society, right? It's very clear language. Who is the greatest in verse 1? And in verse 4, whoever takes the lowly position. In the ancient world, children were at the bottom of the social hierarchy, right next to slaves or servants. Don't think of slaves um, as in our nation's tragic history. It was more like a servant. And honestly, in most Greco-Roman houses, the life of a child and of a slave or a servant, there was very little difference. Jesus is saying, unless you turn all the way around and you abandon your pursuit entirely of upward mobility to the top of the social ladder, and instead of your own free will, as an apprentice of Jesus, you follow Jesus' example and you go in the opposite direction, what some have called a spirituality of descent, based on the life of Jesus, you, of your own free will, take the low position, and you give your life away rather than grasp for more, unless you do that, you will miss out on the life. You will not even enter the kingdom, meaning you will miss out on the life to the full that God has for you. Therefore, verse 4, Whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest. That's who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. More on that in a bit. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. The word welcome is dekomai in Greek, and it was used for hospitality. It was the word for how you would treat a special guest with honor. Jesus is saying not only are we to change the direction of our life trajectory and not chase honor for ourselves, we are to give honor to others, specifically to children. The most obvious example of this is parenting. You parents know after marriage, there is very little that has the potential to move you off of the egoic operating system, at least in a short period of time, like parenting. Other examples are working in Bridgetown Kids or foster care or adoption or mentorship programs like Faithful Friends or Hala, or Big Brother or Sister. We are to welcome children, but not only children. The kind of next examples: hospitality in general. That is the language here. There's a long-standing tradition in the way of Jesus, particular in Benedictine spirituality. If you've ever read St. Benedict's Rule of Life, there's a famous line in there about how you are to welcome the guest as if they are Christ. And you say, welcome Christ. You welcome them as, in a sense, a stand-in for Jesus, and you treat them the way that you would treat Jesus. In our house at home, we have a, not very, it's very small. We have a little Christ room, is what we call it. It's based on, ancient Christian language from an ancient preacher called Chrysostom who said every Christian should have, if he has or she has the means, a Christ room in their home, which is just like a little guest room where you welcome a guest and you treat them as if they are Christ. And you do that, Jesus is saying, not to those who are of high status, but those who are of low. We are to welcome children, but again, not only children. Keep reading. It's a little bit clearer in the next line. Verse 6, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble. Now, pause. Two things right here. One, notice there is a progression in the text from little children in verse 3, and clearly he has in mind like a toddler, a little boy or a little girl, to one such child in verse 5, like something like this little child, to one of these little ones, a term of endearment, slash those who believe in me in verse 6, meaning the child has become a metaphor for any and all who are on the low end of status in the social hierarchy of the day, of the ancient kind of Greco-Roman Mediterranean world, and therefore are more vulnerable to harm. This could be a child in Jesus' world or a slave or often a woman in that society or in the church. It could be those who are new to Jesus. Maybe they have tons of money and tons of privilege or whatever, but they are new to Jesus and not yet grounded in the faith or those who come out of trauma and are still in a process of healing with Jesus. It's any vulnerable person who has come to trust in Jesus. That's a key insight here. Secondly, note that word stumble, or other translations have sin, which is what the word means. The word is actually to stumble or to fall. It was a word picture. To stumble was to fall into sin or away from the faith. Meaning, what Jesus is saying here, is if you do something to betray the trust of those who have put their trust in Jesus, and cause them to sin or fall away from god it would be better for them verse 6 to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble and notice that that heartache in Jesus' word. Woe is not an angry word. It's, a, it's an emotive word. It doesn't even have a meaning. It's like the, the opposite of the word oh, which is what we say when we have a surprise or a delight. Woe is just when there's a surprise over evil and pain and injustice. Woe, there's a heartache here. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. A millstone was a large, heavy, circular stone used to grind corn, so large it was moved most of the time by a donkey. The imagery here is of someone who is kind of dragged out to open sea on a boat or whatever. A millstone is tied around their neck and they are drowned. It's graphic, violent language. The theologian N.T. Wright called it harsh words for a harsh reality. And it's not that Jesus is cruel, for sure he's not violent. First off, it is hyperbole, but it's that Jesus takes the exploitation of the weak by the strong very seriously. Now, my mind goes straight to the socio-political issues of our day, such as systemic racism or political corruption or, more recently, the Jeffrey Epstein scandal, and that is 100% a valid interpretation of the text. But down through church history, the primary interpretation, yes that, but the primary interpretation has been of false teachers who prey on the weak in the church and treat them in such a way that they cause them to sin or to fall away from the faith. I think, uh, remember, this is less about society at large, Matthew 18, and more about life together as a community of apprentices of Jesus. I think of the litany of scandals from those uncovered by the Boston Globe years ago about the Catholic Church to the fall of celebrity pastors and evangelicalism to the outright con artistry of televangelists out to steal money from the naive or the poor. As a pastor, I get front row seats to watch the fallout of what some call spiritual abuse on the soul, and it, ha- it is gut-wrenching. If that has been your experience, I am so very sorry. How do people ever trust God again when a stand in for that trust, be it a pastor or a leader or a father or a mother figure in the church, has betrayed that trust? It is very sad. And the point is that, yes, it will happen. There's just, there is human sin. This side of the return of Jesus, it will happen. But man, Jesus is not okay with it. He goes on, verse eight, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, notice the word play here with the word stumble with verse six, meaning it's easy to point the finger at others and objectify leaders in power who take advantage of the weak. Okay, there's a place for that. But Jesus is saying, watch out for yourself that you do not stumble into sin or fall away from the faith of Jesus. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. That can be translated, the word eternal there isn't like a Platonic word. It doesn't mean time without end. It's aeon in Greek. It means the fire of the age to come or the the kind of the next era of history. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Now, Again, we are reading hyperbole. Jesus is not saying we are to cut up our body in a masochistic mutilation. He's saying we are to do whatever it takes to eradicate sin out of our mind and our body and our life. We are to fight it tooth and claw because no matter how painful the surgery is, no matter how painful it is to cut out sin now, it is far more painful to let it fester like a cancer in our soul and then to end up in hell later. And again, don't read too much into the hell language. It's there, and I'm, my goal is not to explain it away, but to explain the text. Um, but don't import, you know, Dante's vivid imagery and poetry of hell in here at all. That's great poetry. It's not good biblical theology. The word hell is Gehenna in Greek, and it was a very real place in Jesus' day, to the south of Jerusalem. Everybody would have known about it. Jerusalem is built up on a hill, and uh, Gehenna is a steep valley right to the south of it. I've been there my first night in Jerusalem years ago. Um, I went for a walk with my dear friend Steve in Ghana. We went for a walk for an evening stroll in hell. It was actually quite nice. It's, it's come a long ways. Um, today it is just fine, but some historians argue that it was a garbage dump in the time of Jesus where fires burned 24-7 to consume the refuse of the city. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. We don't really know. For sure, in Israel's history, it was where the pagan priests were put to death by King Josiah, if you know that story, at the height of Israel's apostasy. By Jesus' day, because of that, it had become a metaphor for the judgment of idolatry and injustice in the same way that today Las Vegas, you know, or Sin City as we call it, is a metaphor for gambling and sex, or Wall Street, um, depending on how it's used, is a metaphor for corporate finance and greed, or Main Street for middle America. In the same way, Gehenna became a symbol of the reality that in His time and His way, some down the road, in the age to come, at the return of Jesus and the next era of human history, God the Creator will deal with evil and burn it away from His good creation once and for all. That is good news. That is not bad news. The point of Jesus' evocative language here, and it is like very sharp, The point is to shock you and me, the listener, out of our compromise or even our complicity and to get you and I to take sin seriously, and more specifically, the sin of the exploitation of the weak by the strong, and especially in the church, which is the collateral damage so often of our pursuit of greatness or status in the world. Now... What can we at Bridgetown Church take away as a community of apprentices of Jesus? What can we take away from Matthew 18, or at least the first part of Jesus' teaching here about our life together in Portland in 2020? Well, you know, the ancient Near East, most of you know this, was an honor-shame culture, where everything was about your status in the social group, be it your family or your tribe. The West has long been classified by sociologists as a guilt-innocence culture which is what gave rise to individualism. There's an unhealthy kind of individualism that we critique all of the time, kind of the gospel of, you know, self-actualization that we know very well in our city. But there's also a healthy kind of individualism that in a sense is the fruit of Christian theology where you are not just the byproduct of the social hierarchy, as in Marxist or postmodern thought, but you are a soul. You are the image of God. You are, in the language of Psalm 139, fearfully and wonderfully made by God. Before you were ever born, I think of Psalm 139, the days of your life were written in God's book. There is a destiny upon your life and a responsibility of your life before God and others. You can find both individualism and collectivism in Scripture. Near as I can tell, based on my reading, a blend of the two is required for human flourishing. But what's interesting is that sociologists argue, in large part due to social media, as well as to postmodern thought, the West is moving into more of an honor-shame culture, where there's more and more emphasis on your status in the group, which makes Jesus' teaching here more important than ever. Because in an honor-shame culture, then as in now, first century Israel or Instagram, there is a constant negotiation to increase your status in the group. In our culture, there are a thousand examples of this how many followers you have on whatever social media platform or the status signal of your clothing or your watch or your car or your neighborhood or your purse based on wherever you come from. It's where you went to school. It's how cool you are or prestigious your job is or who you know or how well-read you are, how much of a world travel you are. Or As I was chatting to a businessman last night, he said, oh, everything in my world is about the status of like where you eat and how, how much status you have is all based on what restaurants you know. All of this, any number of things, it's all just an attempt to increase our status in other people's eyes. But to do this, most of us also, even if at an unconscious level and often at a very conscious level, have to decrease other people's status. We angle our way up the social ladder at the cost of someone else. This could be a simple as one upmanship in a conversation, or talking over somebody around the table, or a playful kind of sarcastic dig, or a salt, or much more egregious when we take a look at this in society as a whole. And if you play the social Darwinism game, whether on social media, or at work, or in your friend group, or at church, it's only a matter of time until somebody gets hurt. Jesus, in this teaching, is saying, don't play the game. Just non-cooperation. Just walk off the field. Drop the mic. Don't pursue. Don't climb the ladder of upward mobility. Don't pursue more status. Turn. I mean, literally go in the opposite direction to what Jesus in the text calls the lowly position. Now, the NIV has whoever takes the lowly position in verse 4. But in Greek, it's the verb form of the word for humility. The ESV is a little bit more accurate here. It has whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. N.T. Wright in his translation has make yourself humble like this child and then you will be great. Now, humility was not a virtue in the ancient world. It's a little little jarring for us as followers of Jesus, where we have that as a very high value, right? Not at all in the ancient world. You will not find it on any list of virtues from Socrates or Seneca or fill in the blank. Nor... Is it really a value in our world today? In the early 90s, when William Bennett, some of you, I'm dating myself a little bit here, but when he released his famous Book of Virtues, which is this compendium of kind of thousands of years of the best of human civilization and what it has to say on morality, what was conspicuous in its absence from his list was the virtue of humility. The best of human civilization has very little to say about it. It's not a virtue in our world. Pride is a virtue. But in the upside down kingdom of heaven, pride is a vice, and humility is not only a virtue, it is core to life in the kingdom. Now to clarify, humility is not low self-worth, it's not self-deprecating humor, it's not like I'm a doormat and I let people take advantage of me at all. Many have said, and this is not a line from the Bible, it's just a maxim, That humility isn't having a high view of others and a low view of yourself. It's having a high view of others and no view of yourself at all. Just meaning it's living free of the egoic operating system where everything is about me and what I want and what I need and my status and what can I get from you, where we are just free to love other people in the image of God as they actually come to us, to treat others with honor, rather than manipulate them to treat us with honor, which is why humility is a prerequisite for love. If you want to become a loving person, you first have to become a humble woman or man. Without humility, the church itself No matter how good our theology is, if our posture is not one of humility, it will devolve into just another social group full of people in conflict to satisfy their own egoistic drive. It is not so, it is not to be so in the community of Jesus apprentices that we call the church where love, as defined by Jesus, to will the good of another ahead of your own, no matter the cost to yourself, a compassionate commitment to another soul, the good of another soul, where that is the ultimate value. For Jesus, an apprentice is very simple teaching to take on the humility of a child. As I said before, scholars argue Jesus kind of, object lesson here of the child is less about a sentimental character trait unique to children and more about the status of children in the social hierarchy of Jesus' day. Scholars point out two things that are unique to children in our day, but especially in Jesus' day. Number one, children receive everything as a gift from their father or their mother. They live in complete and total dependence on the generosity and love of a parent. Every meal, every item of clothing, every experience, it's all gift. They live at the mercy of mom and dad, especially in Jesus' day. And as every parent knows, when they forget this, as a parent, it is very annoying. I'm not going to lie. But when they live with that reality set before their mind, not only are you as a parent much happier, at least your ego is, but they're much happier as well. All of our children are great and, and for the most part grateful, but we have one kid, our middle child, Moses, who is just an especially, he's just a very grateful kid, very observant kid. And it's interesting, there is a joy about Moto that is just hard to explain. That is not a coincidence. Secondly, children, at least in Jesus' day, work hard to serve other people and to put others ahead of themselves. Now, this is very easy for us to miss in our knowledge economy, where children are at an economic level, not an emotional level, but a liability, not an asset, meaning they cost you money as a parent. They do not make you money as a parent at all. But for thousands of years, and honestly, in much of the world still today, you need children. If you're a man or a woman, you're a mom or a dad, you need as many children as possible to run your farm or your small business and contrary to what we think as Americans it's actually like all the research says it's very good for children to work hard at a young age now I'm not talking about like working in an industrial factory at the turn of the century in New York or London none of that I'm talking about say working on a farm with chores developmental psychologists argue that self-worth is only a function of unconditional love from birth to about age three After that, they hypothesize that it is a function of contribution to a social group. Meaning, for a child, and actually this is true for an adult as well, to feel happy and confident, at first they need unconditional love from mom and dad. Like you can't even live on your own. And here's love and affection and food and shelter and delight and praise. They need that God-like kind of unconditional love. That's the base. But they that's not enough then they need to for their own well-being. They need to contribute. This is why people that you know, at least this is my antidotal experience, maybe it's not yours, but people I know who come from large families and or who grew up on a farm or where there were just a ton of work to do, chores or a small business or something, tend to be the most joyful, content, and emotionally well-adjusted people I know. Whereas often children who experience a ton of unconditional love, but often in the form of like mild consumerism, which is not all bad, but like daddy saying, hey, let's go for a daddy daughter date or whatever. Let me buy you ice cream. Again, not bad, but often children who that's all of their experience grow up to be unhappy and even neurotic. We were made by God not just to receive love, but then to give that love away, to become a conduit for love, to flow through our body to the world. And the sooner that we move off of the egoic operating system, the happier and the healthier we are, whether you're a little kid or an adult like myself. Jesus is saying that we are to take the posture of a child where we just receive Life as a gift from our Father, and we live just in total reliance on His mercy and love, and we are then to let that love flow through our life to other people. We are to work hard and serve and contribute to the world at large, and specifically to the church, and specifically to the little ones, to those who don't have the same level of status in our community. This coming week, who can you welcome? Who can you practice hospitality with? Have over for, well, a meal? I don't know, it's COVID, whatever, social distancing? Don't email me. Who can you honor? Who can you contribute and give love away to? To end, let's circle back to the apprentice's question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Notice that Jesus does not rebuke the disciples' desire for greatness Instead, he redefines what greatness is. We're all born with a desire to be great. Just put another way, just a desire to matter or to make a difference. None of us just want to like take up space as another carbon footprint or consumer. The last thing we need is another Yelp review. We want to leave the world better than we found it. Think of the mythology of kind of American or Western culture, and yes, we have mythology. Think of a movie like Star Wars with a Luke Skywalker or a ray from nowhere, or Lord of the Rings and Frodo or Spider-Man and Peter Parker. We we love the story of a woman or a man born into obscurity or poverty or pain with no like privilege at all yet they go somehow they discover a father most of the time or a mother, some kind of a parent, and they go on a journey of self-discovery and sacrifice and and conflict and pain and suffering, and in the end, they change the course of history. We watch movie after movie. We read novel after novel. We tell it's the same story on repeat. Why? Because it's the human story. It's the human desire to be great, to contribute, to give, to matter. But that desire that I think God put in our DNA is co-opted by sin. And as we age, we have to find a way to, like, interface with and to deal with that desire. Many people, many of us, just numb the pain of desire with hedonism. Let's just make money if we can, and let's just enjoy life, whatever your version of hedonism is. Others let it consume and corrupt them and become willing to do anything to anyone in the pursuit of status. Either way, sin has mutated the image of God in all of us, the desire put into our body to, in the language of Genesis, rule over the earth. So what Jesus does here is genius. He doesn't rebuke the disciples or you and me for our desire to be great. Instead, he redefines what greatness is. And he turns it into something that is accessible for all who apprentice under him no matter your family of origin, no matter what culture you were born into, no matter what time in human history you were born into, no matter what your strength is or your weakness, no matter who you are or your personality type, all of us have the potential as an apprentice of Jesus to be great, but by his definition, where it's not about status, but about service, not about how high up you are in the hierarchy, but how humble, not about greed or grasping for control, but about gratitude and life as a gift. For Jesus, all of us can become great. We just have to become like a little child.